Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week. We hope you had a great or are having a wonderful National Science Week, as it is Science Week still. Certainly events still going on all over yeah. the place. Yeah. So do have a look. Science never look. stops. Science never stops. That's right. My name is Claire, and this week on the show, we actually have my favourite show, which is when the stars align and we have a triple creature feature for you. Oh, That's those right. are the best. Those are the best. Three stories, three animals, triple <laughs> creature feature. Now, the first feature of creature, I'm actually going to be talking to a researcher from the University of Newcastle, Dr. Vincent Ralt. He's actually a, a shark researcher and is going to be talking about his research looking at fish traps and how if you put magnets on fish traps, it stops the sharks becoming bycatch in the fish traps and stops the sharks, like, dying. So it's like shark repellent? It is shark repellent. Wow. Yeah, and he also has some amazing tips for surfers on how to repel sharks as well. Is it well. magnets as well? It's not magnets. Okay. Yeah, take that, Batman. Yeah. <laughs> Stu, how about you? Well, I've got a story about some insects, and they're a particular kind of insect called what I call a cicada. Some people call them cicadas. Yeah. Um, Victorians like to call them cicadas. Yeah, some and, and various other and people other in the world. Yeah. But uh, these these particular cicadas are the kind of cicadas that tune in, turn on, and drop out of the sky. Um, there's, there's a particular fungus that makes them freak out. Whoa. And turn into crazy lunatic insects for a little brief period of time before they die. And Chris, what about your creature feature? Well, I'm also going on the the small, many-legged things. However, I'm talking about spiders, but not just any spiders. I'm talking about wolf spiders in the Arctic, which and how they're being affected by climate change. What they're doing is they're getting bigger and more heavily armoured. But this is necessarily <laughs> a bad thing because it turns out that spiders are actually offsetting some of the warming. They are offsetting climate change. These giant. Armoured spiders. Incredible. Yeah. They're probably doing a lot more good than our government. Yeah, they, they look, don't don't hate the spiders, is what I'm saying. Absolutely. Don't hate the spiders. Don't hate the creatures on this Lost in Science triple creature feature special. Bycatch is one of the biggest challenges that fisheries face. How to sustainably, ethically and efficiently catch target fish and reduce the chance of other animals being caught in the process. Now, new Australian research uses magnets to reduce bycatch. By putting magnets in fish traps, the researchers have reduced the number of sharks and rays getting caught and fishermen are thrilled I have researcher Dr. Vincent Rayolt from the University of Newcastle to chat more about his research. Vincent, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you for having me. So, Vincent, do magnets really repel sharks? Uh, in certain instances, apparently. 
it's it's not a simple yes or no answer, which a lot of people kind of want. Uh, but science usually isn't that simple, particularly sure. yep. biological science. So in what situations do magnets recover so sharks? The, the thing about magnets is yeah. they've got a, an effective range of a couple centimetres. And if, if you're looking at a powerful magnet, you're looking at maybe 10 or 15 centimetres at most because the the magnetic fields, the power of those magnetic fields, it, it decreases exponentially as you move away from that magnet. Mm-hmm. And and that means the effective range of magnets is very small. And so the use of magnets to repel sharks basically has to force the shark into a situation where it has to get really close to that magnet for that magnet to have that repelling effect. Now, now the way the, the reason that magnets do repel sharks and rays in some situations is that sharks and rays have these little pores on their nose. And if you look at a picture of a shark or a ray, you should be able to see those pores. So they're called ampullae of Lorenzini. That's a great name. It's a great, it's a fantastic name. And uh, they're they're very interesting little structures. And uh, what they are is little pores and they're filled with a conductive gel. And that gel is, like I said, very conductive and leads to these little pockets at the ends that have a number of sensory cells which effectively allow them to sense electromagnetic fields. Wow. It's cool for starters because it's a sense that not any other animal has in that, uh, you know, bats and, and dolphins and whales are pretty cool because they have echolocation that they can, that can uh, sense things with. Um, and fish have uh, lateral lines, as do sharks and rays, which let them sort of sense sounds with their bodies. Uh, but only sharks and rays have that ability to sense electromagnetic fields. And the reason they can do that and then the, the reason why they've evolved to have that sense is because they can use it to actually detect the electrical currents generated by muscle contractions. The reason that that works is your nerve sends a little electrical impulse through that muscle that causes it to contract. And that little tiny electrical field that your body generates is detectable by sharks and rays. And so they actually use this basically as a way to sense and detect rays in in situations where they wouldn't normally be able to detect them, so under sand or in really sort of murky conditions. And that means when sharks and rays run into things like a permanent magnet, which has a compar- comparatively extremely strong magnetic field, it kind of plays havoc with that sense. Uh, it's not harmful from what we can tell to sharks and rays at all, but if, if they run into magnets, it can be quite unpleasant for them, and so they, they, it tends to work as a d- deterrent in a lot of situations. But the key word here is situations, because, again, I reiterate that the, the distance that magnets are effective at is quite small. So talk us through the research that, that you've just published um, and what your experimental design was. We were using what are called fish traps. So these are very simple structures. They're wooden frames that are about two meters long by one meter wide and uh, one meter high. So you could quite comfortably fit in one of these little traps. Uh, There's chicken wire around the outside. There's uh, little funnels on a couple of the sides of that trap. And you just put some bait inside that trap and that attracts fish uh, to the, the fish trap. They swim through the funnels and basically can't find their way out. Yeah, And that's how they catch fish. The fisheries here in Australia on the East Coast, uh, there's quite a few uh, 
crab fisheries, they target things like snapper and morwong, so a nice tasty fish. And very frequently, they actually catch sharks and rays, primarily blind sharks. They're not actually blind, that's just what they're called. <laughs> uh, but they're little catch sharks, and in, about, uh, in total, about 10% of their total catch is these sharks. So they're, they're, they're quite frequent. The, the fishermen have had this inkling that the fact they're catching sharks actually causes them to catch fewer fish. Uh, on top of this, obviously, is if you're a shark, a poor little shark who gets caught inadvertently in this case, uh, they have to pull you up, pull you out of the cage, and chuck you back in the water, which is obviously quite traumatic and has what we would call sublethal effects. So it might cause them to be very stressed and have trouble feeding for the next couple of days, which could actually cause them to die because, say, they're easier to, to eat from a predator. So what we did is because there's all this research indicating that magnets could be useful in certain situations, is, well, they have, we already have these little fish traps with funnels that are quite tight that are uh, small enough that you can place a couple of magnets around them and have that magnetic field actually reach across the entire uh, opening. And that means you don't have that problem that magnets usually have of having that really reduced range because to get in the traps, the sharks and rays really have to basically go straight by a magnet to actually get to the bait. And what have your results been? What have you, what have you actually seen? So we saw, after deploying about 1,000 traps, uh, working closely with local com commercial fishermen, and overall it was really interesting because we found that traps with magnets on them were about 30% less likely than traps without magnets to, to catch sharks. So that you're talking about about a 30% reduction in sharks. And, of course, this is a relative reduction. So in some cases, that means in areas where you would regularly catch sharks, you now catch no sharks whatsoever, which is fantastic uh, to start with. Now, now, the really cool thing was that uh, adding those magnets actually increased the number of targeted fish catches by about 30%. It looks like because we're excluding the sharks from the traps, the fish enter the traps more readily because those sharks aren't there. And that means overall the fishermen catch more fish. And so what are the fishermen who you've been uh, working with, what are they saying about this? Are they going to adopt it in their own practice or are you still going to do further research? So uh, the fishermen who, who helped us conduct this research, they're really optimistic about these results. Uh, for them, the, what they're more interested in is actually reducing the total number of traps because if they catch more fish with these magnets on as well as catching fewer sharks, they don't have to use as many fish traps to catch as many fish overall, which means less time on the water. It means fewer traps that they have to deploy. Uh, those traps have, in some cases get lost, which means a lower environmental impact. And so the fishermen were very happy with these results. And Vincent, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, swimmers and surfers out there who are imagining some sort of magnetic wetsuit to protect themselves from potential shark attacks. Is, yes. this, is, is this something that you can imagine in the far off future? So look, uh, with, with permanent magnets like this, I'd say almost almost zero chance of that becoming true. And again, the problem is you're looking at the, the range of effect of a magnet is really small. And the sharks that tend to bite humans are things like white sharks, uh, which are generally at a length at or above three meters long. 
which means that if it's swimming at any sort of speed, basically it'll be biting the swimmer before it even senses that magnetic field. <laughs> However, uh, that same sensory organ, those ampullae of Lorenzini, you can produce much larger fields with actual electricity. And so I'm not sure if you've heard of the shark shield. It's, there's also something called the shark defender uh, that you can actually uh, screw into your surfboard. And these work by producing electrical currents, electrical impulses through the water. Those systems have actually been shown with peer-reviewed research to actually reduce the interest of sharks. And this is, of course, not working with tiny little cuddly sharks. This is white sharks. Oh, so, so if, there is if, hope. There is, there is hope. And there is a lot of research going at, on at the moment across Australia uh, to try and develop these sorts of uh, shark deterrent systems. Uh, but obviously it's not a very simple subject, and people can't expect a uh, magical bullet silver bullet that's going to solve the problem immediately, uh, but there is progress in this field for sure. Well, congratulations on the publication, Vincent, and uh, for helping make more sustainable fisheries for sharks and for fish. Thank you very much. Triple. Creature. Feature. On. Lost. In. Science. Now... I don't know about you guys, but I love a good story about parasitic, mind-controlling microbes. Oh, absolutely. And uh, we've looked at a few on the show over the years, including uh, Toxoplasma gondii. Toxoplasmosis is one of my favourite things to talk about. Yeah. Can you just give a quick run-through of that then, Claire? So Toxoplasmosis is a parasite that, that lives in cats... Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it comes out through their poo. Yep. And then somehow it gets into rats after that. A parasite mod- like goes straight to the rat's brain and modifies their brain to make more risk-taking behaviours. So then they're attracted to like cat wee and they like throw themselves in front of cats. So that the cats will eat them again and then yeah. the um, life cycle will continue. Yeah. It's it's a pretty pretty crazy sort of a sort of a little bug out there. So don't eat the cat poo, is what you're saying. Try and avoid it. Yeah. My other one that I like is the uh, which I'm sure you've got on your list here, Stu. It's the cordyceps fungus yes. that affects the ants and oh, yes. makes them climb yes. up to the top of tall plants and then grows a thing out of their and brains. Yeah. Kills the ant in the yeah. process. Ophiocordyceps, it's called. Yeah. <laughs> but the fungus I'm going to talk about this week really takes the space cake. This is a fungus that turns insects into drug-fueled sex maniacs. <laughs> As if they weren't bad enough already. As if they weren't. Uh, the insect I'm talking about is what I call a cicada. I also call them cicadas, but I hear Victorians say something different. When I say, oh, here those cicadas, they, Victorians think I'm talking about the rice biscuit. Yeah, we we say cicada. we say we say cicada. They say cicada. Cicada. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things. That, yeah, I grew up calling it a cicada. I have noticed that uh, Sir David Attenborough calls them cicadas, so I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> um, look, this fungus apparently is only present in North America, and it infects a number of species of cicada, including the 17-year cicada that emerges from its underground larval stage every 17 years. So some of these emerging adults get infected as they crawl out of the ground with a fungal spore from a fungus called Massospora, 
which starts off by attacking the cicada's body. So the main affected part of the insect's body that gets infected is the abdomen, which is kind of the largest part of a cicada. A lot of insects, that's the biggest Biggest part. part. Sure, it's Um, the meatiest part. Yeah, but it doesn't directly infect the thorax or the head, so the insect can still move around. Uh Um, But it does have an impact on the brain of the cicadas that are infected because the fungus produces some chemicals that were recognised by researchers studying the infection in the United States. The first thing that they noticed when they were examining these infected cicadas was a chemical called psilocybin, which is a hallucinogen which is commonly found in mushrooms. Magic mushrooms contain psilocybin. The surprise being, this fungus is only distantly related to mushrooms at all. It's a much different kind of fungus, and it diverged from the branch that became mushrooms about 900 million years ago. The second chemical they found is called cathinone, which is a kind of amphetamine, which is previously known only from the cut plant, which is chewed as a stimulant in North Africa and the Middle East. So finding either of these chemicals in a microscopic fungus is surprising, but finding both was kind of hard for these researchers to believe. So they carefully checked that they weren't just getting contamination or something. So they checked that only the infected cicadas that they were researching contained these drugs. And then they went, okay, We've, we've established that, that's, that, that it's present in only the infected cicadas. Then they went, okay, let's look for the genes in the fungus to make these drugs in the fungus. And they found that, yeah, there's actually the genes for making these, the psilocybin and the cathinone are present in the fungus. And also the precursor chemicals that turn into psilocybin and cathinone are also present in the fungus. So they can actually uh, biochemically follow the pathway through. So how are these chemicals an advantage to the fungus? Well, first of all, they suppress the appetite of the infected insects, so they don't get as hungry as they normally would, especially what they noticed in the males. So they also get hyperactive because they've got a dose of amphetamines in them as well. And hyperactive adult insects really only have one thing left on their minds – if they're not spending their time eating, uh, and that is to mate. So basically, they end up spreading the spores of the massospora fungus all through the population with their promiscuous behaviour. So they basically shower <laughs> all of the other uh, oh cicadas with the spores. You know, it's, it's like a sexually transmitted STD. Um, or an STI. insect disease. Does it, STID. So, so does it infect just then other adults or does it somehow get into the eggs that then... Basically the adults die and the spores just fall on the ground, oh, which is how it okay. infects the newly emerged adults. So it only really infects adults. Okay. But obviously the, the other downside for cicadas is that aside from killing them, the fungal infection basically destroys their abdomen which is where their reproductive organs are. So it doesn't actually help the cicadas to propagate uh, new generations of cicada. It just kills them and makes them behave this way and spreads the fungus, but it doesn't actually spread them. So it's definitely a parasite and not a mutually symbiotic thing. It's just, it just kind of destroys the cicadas. 
is this the other reason it has an appetite suppressant too? Because sitting's destroying their abdomen. If they had no stomach, they might go, "Oh, I feel strangely hungry." Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that works exactly. <laughs> yeah. They're they're really not sure of what the effects of hallucinogenics on cicadas are either, mm. because they really don't know yeah. what how it would affect, uh, you know, their their, their brains their as system. such, and not really no. developed they're like quite uh, decentralized. like mammals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they've got you know um, ganglions rather yeah, than yeah. brains anyway. So what? the psilocybin is doing to them is anyone's guess at this point, really. They're up on trees going, I think I can fly. And guess what? <laughs> and they can. <laughs> and they can. Look, uh, if you want to read it further, the paper's online in the preprint archive, BioRxiv, and it's called Discovery of Psychoactive Plant and Mushroom Alkaloids in Ancient Fungal Cicada Pathogens, if you want to look that up and find some more information. Okay, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and today I bring you the story of how the spiders were going to save us all from climate change. Which spiders? Who said that? Well, what? no one actually said that. What are they going to do? Spin a big web and yeah, reflect the sun's <laughs> rays back into space? I mean, hey, I th- that's a great idea. Someone yeah, we should, should get on to that. That's, that's, yeah. that. That would have like bad bad results I'm sure it'd be like something would go wrong like you know would, you're blocking out the sun you're going to cause other problems same with photosynthesis this kind of stuff um, giant space bugs will get caught in it imagine right, too well, what's, uh, what's your smart idea then Chris? okay this is this is about um, wolf spiders in the arctic who uh, are doing their own little bit they might now sound very impressive these wolf spiders they actually are only like 1.25 centimetres long so they're, they're maybe oh. not the most impressive seeming however they are one of the top predators of the arctic tundra <laughs> Is that just because there's nothing else alive out there? Well, there are wolves. Okay. So wolves and wolf spiders are still well, among the top predators. Apparently there are... Hang on. A- in the Arctic tundra, yeah. you've got the polar bear. Well, they're saying they're one of the top... I'm not saying they're the top predators. I'm saying they're like one the of the top predators. But, okay, there are Most apex of apex predators. <laughs> If you added up all the spiders <laughs> together, they would weigh 80 times more than all the wolves, is what I'm saying. Oh, right. So, so yeah. By mass. By biomass. By biomass. They've got the... I don't <laughs> bet the that, I haven't. Spot. I haven't added up the polar bears, but my reference told me that there, there are more spiders than there are wolves. Well, yeah, obviously there are more spiders than there are wolves, because an individual spider weighs considerably less than an individual wolf. But anyway. But anyway. But anyway. So, yeah, these spiders there, they're, they're a big deal. Because what they eat... They eat um, a springtail. This is um, gore Is that polybola. type of insect? Well, actually, no. Not according to Wikipedia. It's an arthropod. <laughs> yes, it's a hexapod, in fact. It has six legs. Apparently no longer classified as insects. Used to be an insect. Because they're so ancient that they predate the insects? Pretty much something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and they're, they're about half the size of the spiders. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of them in the Arctic as well. Uh, what they eat, though, is fungi in the soil. Um, these fungi eat decomposing organic matter, and when these fungi do that, they release greenhouse gases. They release carbon dioxide and methane, mm-hmm. which contribute to climate change. But with warming temperatures, there are changes happening with this ecosystem and with the spiders in particular. Um, there has been was some research um, recently that looked at a certain species of these spiders. I'm not sure it's the same species. There's a few different species of wolf spiders in the Arctic, it turns out, but some of them are getting bigger. With, um, with climate change. As the temperatures warm, apparently the thickness of their exoskeleton is getting thicker, 
Probably because, um, you know, they have longer summers, so like more time to grow. And then, you know, with larger adults, then you get, of course, more offspring. And, yeah, and so you're getting more and more larger, heavily armoured spiders in the <laughs> Arctic. No, it's good, though. Remember, they're good guys. They're saving us. Yeah. Yeah. Because this, I mean, this does sound like a bad thing. More spiders sounds not like a great thing. More, more heavily armoured yeah, spiders sounds like a terrible idea. heavily armoured. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, see, the, the worry is that if you have more spiders, then what will happen is the more spiders will eat more springtails, and without the springtails, then the fungus will grow out of control and they'll release more greenhouse gases. Doesn't that make sense? Yes. Yep. Sure, yeah. Is that how food chains work, isn't it? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. However, there's a paper recently published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences which, which by an, biologist Amanda Colts and her colleagues noticed that as the temperatures rose, you in fact... You did get more spiders, but you also got less fungus. Ooh. What's going on? What's going on? Well, they decided to find out. So what they did was they collected spiders and they put them in... Uh, in heavily armoured spiders. Heavily armoured spiders, yeah. yeah. They put them in uh, these little model ecosystems. They had about 30 little kind of model ecosystems they set up. Mm-hmm. Um, half the ecosystems, they, they warmed two degrees more than normal. Yep. Do, you know climate change. Sure. And um, they also had varying numbers of spiders in each one just to test what the, um, the numbers of the spiders did. Uh, and, and what they found was that um, in the normal temperature ones, the unwarmed um, little terraria. Was there fungi in the terraria as well? Yes. Okay, yeah. In the unwarmed terraria, um, that more spiders indeed meant that they ate more of the springtails. You know, there were fewer okay. springtails when there were more spiders. But when the temperature was raised, you actually found there were more springtails. Um, and hence, of course, the springtails in the fungus, you've got less fungus. Now, the reason, they, they've got a theory for the reason for this, why there's this opposite effect. Um, and they weren't able to verify this, as far as I can find out in this actual paper. But the theory is that the spiders in the warming environments, they change their behavior. They, um, they compete more, they fight amongst each other, and they actually eat other spiders. They get become cannibals. So he- heavily armoured these... giant cannibal spiders. We've got the heavily armoured wolf spiders to thank for eating each other so there is less carbon dioxide being emitted by the fungi. That's right. So they're saying that this is kind of – it's. They Thanks, suggest, spiders. Taking one for the team. They do suggest that the warming temperature has, in fact, led to these spiders doing this, which is going on to offset some of the warming by reducing the amount of fungus. I hope, I hope that's – I hope that's not a lesson for humans as well and a way that we can reduce that carbon footprint. By what? By fighting Eating each, each other. other. Well, <laughs> look, as long as we get the heavy armour as well, I think I think we can. <laughs> that's true. a good start. It, it is like, it, we're not going to advocate for these things. And look, and no one is actually going to say that this, these um, cannibalistic heavily armoured spiders are going to save us from climate change. Not yet. But look, it is interesting how complex these interactions can be in nature and, you know, things, unexpected effects, um, and how you know, occasionally the, the feedback from climate change can go in, the, in the, the good direction, not necessarily the bad direction. And that's all we have time for on Lost in Science, our triple creature feature today. Thanks so much for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com. 
or on Twitter at Lost in Science One, on Facebook at Lost in Science on 3CR. Failing that, just find us on your radio next week when Claire, Stu and Chris once again get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.